Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Martin Gillespie is an entrepreneur, public speaker, and storyteller, recognized in 2021 as one of the top 500 global leaders in mental health and sustainability. Martin is also an international best-selling author on a collaborative Amazon book, The Power of Reinvention. He is a former board member of the Australasian College of Nutritional Environmental Medicine and has established Tackling the Silence, an international well-being consulting organization with a focus on the role of gut health to improve our mental states and self-image. As an entrepreneur with a passion for healthy lifestyle, Martin created his own business to focus on wellness and preventative health. He is a believer that a change is necessary in society, including the teaching of wellness, good nutrition, holistic health, connection, and optimism. From a personal standpoint, Martin has also overcome personal trauma and stage four cancer over the past few years. As a keen spokesman, Martin also enjoys running, swimming, yoga, and meditation, and also spends his time as an ambassador for cancer research charities. Martin Gillespie, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Look, it's absolutely fantastic to be here, and I feel that this is such an international flavor. Yourself, I'm a Scotsman here in Australia, and we're just going to have so much fun on this podcast. It's going to be great. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. You've already brought up my first point, that you have an interesting Australian accent. doesn't really fit with the Australian accent I hear from most people. How did you end up going from, uh, from Scotland all the way down to the opposite corner of the globe? So it's funny, actually. I actually came out here in the year 2000, and I, I have a couple of stories that I tell. I, I actually say that I came with the Scottish Olympic team since Sydney had the Olympics in 2000, and people look at me and go, did Scotland have an Olympic team? No. <laughs> and then the other story I say is that I, I actually jumped on the wrong plane. I was supposed to go to America, but I can't spell, so I ended up in Australia. <laughs> so Nice. My third story is that when I moved here, I actually raised the IQ level by so many percentage points. <laughs> they kept me in the country. They kept you. Oh, that's great. I do like the first one. I, I envision you coming over from the Olympic team and defecting over to Australia from Scotland. <laughs> Look, it, and it's, it was funny, actually, when I came out here in 2000, and um, yeah, it's an amazing country. But some of the different languages and some of the different nuances, I, I really quite struggled for about the first 18 months of moving here. Um, going shopping to, to buy food and go to the supermarket was so different. And some of, the, some of the words that they used were so different from what I was used to, not to mention the, the climate and it was extremely warm. And I remember getting sunburned so many times because I didn't appreciate how warm summer could be. Wow. Wow. Crazy. So I, you, we've done almost 400 episodes and I don't know that we've ever talked to anybody that's from Scotland. And today we're going to be talking about challenges and overcoming challenges. And you certainly have overcome a lot in your life. And I definitely want to talk about that. But before we do, tell us a little bit about growing up in Scotland. What was that like for you? So growing up in Scotland, actually, I was one of um, five kids and, you know, it was very, I was going to say one of the amazing things is that Scotland has a fantastic sense of humor and a sense of community. And one thing that resonates with me hugely is that the fact that I was brought up in a household in particular and in a community where you actually sat around the proverbial table and discussed things. And even if you disagreed with that person, you actually had that communication of being able to listen and also recognize that people have to have differences of opinions. Mm. Um, but Scotland was, Scotland was fun. I went to university there. Um, and one of the, uh, my, my first degree I spent in the northern part of Scotland where it's that cold, Casey, the polar bears come in off the, off the water because they're going, it's too bloody cold to be out there. <laughs> That's pretty cold. <laughs> but it was absolutely brilliant. And um, as I said, I think that one of the beautiful things about Scottish mentality is they have a sense of looking after your neighbor and also a sense of humor, which I think is so important that over the last few years in particular, 
we've lost that sense of humor of just being able to have fun. Yeah. Yeah, we really have. That's a really good point. Like everything is so centered around the news and it's so easy to get sucked up on everything that is quote unquote negative happening around the world that's so far out of our control that we can forget to have a sense of humor and take ourselves with a little bit more levity than we do. So I love that. I love that you have that as part of your background being from Scotland. As you got to Australia, you talked about that kind of longer transition period. What were some of the challenges of being down in a, in a completely different country in a totally different climate? So one of the biggest challenges I found was that I didn't have a network of school friends or a community. And I think one of the mistakes that I made is that I lived on my own for the first two years. So I didn't have, you know, flatmates or house sharing that you could leverage that well. So in all honesty, the first sort of 18 months was quite a lonely time for me. And trying to form relationships when you're in your mid-20s, late-20s, etc. And you're kind of unsure, is this the right move for me? Am I doing the right thing? So you've got a lot of self-doubt coming into your body, if that makes sense. That does. That makes a lot of sense. There would be challenging. Eventually, you did kind of settle in and learn to appreciate the country. What was life like before a particularly challenging time for you, 2010 to, let's say, 2012, which you can talk about in a second, but what was your life like leading up to that? So one of the key things, actually, I once had been here uh, for a few months, I'm a runner, and I actually joined a running club and that brought me a beautiful social network. And it also meant that you, I met people just in shorts and T-shirt, without makeup, without the suit on, without the masks, if that makes sense. And when you meet people, you're very vulnerable and you're, you're more open to form deeper, more personal relationships. And that really helped me hugely. And it opened up the door to some fantastic friendships of a group of people that were all about the same age. We would socialize together. We would run in the morning, bike ride the following morning, go out partying, if that makes sense, at nighttime. But it was just fun. And that really helped me personally, but it also helped my mates as well, that we were all, we were Scots, Irish, English, Australian, with this international flavor. And it was a really great area to learn from each other and more importantly, grow emotionally with each other. Yeah. Yeah. So helpful to have that social construct and people that you can rely on and also know that other people are relying on you. I think that's wonderful. Tell us about your professional career as you were down there. I understand you've started several businesses and again, leading up to that time around 2010, 2011, I believe your stress was fairly high. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was um, very fortunate to move to Australia. I was actually transferred with the company I was with. So that's the real reason that I came out here. And I came with the open mind of staying for a couple of years. And when I was here, I actually ended up moving from the business I was in into the, the amazing world of IT security, cybersecurity, which is extremely prevalent now, but it, ha it always has been in the last 20 years. It was a great learning curve. However, one of the key areas of it is that it brings a lot of stress and your performance and you become almost programmed into this, um, dare I say it, the white picket fence mentality that if you want to establish yourself as a leader in that space, you go above and beyond. You're working 60 hours a week. You're almost hypnotized by the rewards that are given for types of performance. And the rewards quintessentially are you sacrifice your health for money. Yeah. But you don't realize what's happening to yourself. And from 
a personal point of view, I was married at the time. You're on that trajectory of life in your late 30s, in your mid-late 30s, of just thinking that this is my life, if that makes sense. And a lot was quite exciting on some things, and I recall very vividly um, walking in the front door of Australian Federal Police in the capital of Australia going, I'm from Glasgow, and I'm walking in the front door of a police station. Why am I doing this? <laughs> I'm working with a lot of government and um, police organizations protecting people from the challenges of what happens on the internet. And it was quite, I have to be honest, it was actually really exciting and also quite scary on what access people can get just through the vision of a screen or a telephone. Mm. Uh, so, so tell us, you just mentioned that, that to be able to live that lifestyle, your health is going to suffer. And I think most of us understand now in this day and age that, yes, the chronic stress is extremely difficult as far as health. You went through a, a particular, um, very scary health challenge. So can you tell us about that and what that was like? Yeah, certainly. So if I take it, and it's funny that we're, we're recording this at the quintessential, the end of a calendar year. If I look back on, 2012, for, for me in particular, was a year of massive change. And like most people, we start the year off with, I'm not going to say New Year resolutions, almost you set your goal, you set your intentions for what, what you want for that year. And that year was a cluster of chaos for me. I had one major um, personal goal, and that was to run a marathon in 2012. And the reason for doing that, here in Australia, we do distance by kilometers, not by miles. And a marathon is 42 kilometers. And I was turning 42 that year. And I thought, 42, 42, makes a perfect, perfect sense to me. However, 2012, the wheels came off on several, several milestones that impacted my life. In the April of that year, my young sister um, lost her battle with breast cancer at the age of 37. Six weeks later, my father um, had an accidental death. He was on um, a wall outside his house and he fell off the wall and he had a pair of garden secateurs in his top pocket. And as he fell, the secateurs pierced him in the heart and he bled to death. And then six months after that, my six-year marriage disintegrated and in the November of 2012, I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a blood cancer. And to put it into perspective, there are four stages of blood cancer. One, two, three, and four. There is no stage five. Stage five, you're no longer on this planet. So I was petrified when I was diagnosed, um, I did use quite a few swear words when I was diagnosed and amongst an awful lot of tears, thinking, I don't want to die. Mm. And I have to say that was a massive pivotal point in my life. And it actually took a, a huge amount of learning and one of the biggest learnings I received was actually putting my hand out to receive help. Yeah. Yeah, my mom suffered through breast cancer for seven and a half years. And always for her, she had that independent spirit. She was the person that always did things for herself. So I would say the hardest part about all of that, you know, alongside the suffering that she went through, was asking for help, was having people around her, uh, you know, allowing them to step in and help. It's a very challenging thing for us. Well, it, it, <clears throat> hugely. And it, it doesn't matter. I've come to the realization it doesn't matter what gender you are. Making that step to have the open heart, not so much to ask for help, but to receive it, two different energies. And receiving it, it might not be the one person. It might take a team of support that you need. 
but they're there to help you. And that for me, besides some of the amazing drugs that I received, and I sound like you know that, that famous movie of train spotting, I received some really good drugs. They were fantastic. <laughs> I think I have received, to put it into context, I've received over half a million dollars worth of drugs. Wow. And the only downside of them, they've given me a Scottish accent and a fantastic sense of humor, <laughs> of which both I'm grateful for. Mm. Yeah, I love that. But receiving the help, and <clears throat> that opened the door to an, on, to an onward journey of getting help from other people, other psychologists in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the things that changed in your life after getting such a scary diagnosis. When, when did things feel like they were starting to turn around for you? So <clears throat> it started turning around again. Once I opened the door to receiving some help, that's when my mind started changing. And one of the areas that I really focused on was what am I feeding myself? Because one of the downsides of chemotherapy drugs is that it gives you peripheral neuropathy, which is a numbness in your fingers and toes. So I could not have the skills to play Lego with my kids because I didn't have the cognitive mindset to actually put A onto B. So I went to see some dietitians and nutritionists, and all they would do would give me the standard Australian or the standard American diet sheet and say, eat this, eat six to 10 vegetables a day, have breakfast cereal, high carbohydrates, and you'll be fine. And I started putting on some weight. And I could do some movement, some exercise, but I'm thinking, this doesn't feel right. And I, you know, I invested in the blenders and the juicers, and I would have all these juicers for juicing for breakfast and they were horrible. And I, I flicked a switch in my head going, I'm not eating right. That's impacting my brain. So I went back to basics and my first degree is in hotel management and nutrition. I started studying what biology is happening in my body. And that opened the door to going, wait a minute, I need animal protein. I need real food. And realizing that your gut, not just from a physical point of view, but your gut is the core to your well-being. And every single day, we are the CEO of over 40 trillion cells in our gut. And it took a little bit of time, I have to say, of the transition between I always going from the, the mindset of eating six to 10 vegetables a day and four or five servings of fruit, which quintessentially is sugar, eliminating them slowly and realizing that they were no longer serving me. What was serving me was proper human food. Wow. Wow. I, looking back now, do you recall where you were doing your research, like who you were learning from at that time? That seems, you know, that now, you know, we are talking about, it, lots of other people are talking about carnivore diets, no carbohydrate, low carbohydrate, no plant food type diets. But, but I mean, even five, 10 years ago, you really didn't learn a lot about those things. You really had to go digging through them. Do you, do you recall where you were doing some of your research? Yeah. So <clears throat> it was quite funny, actually. Um, you mentioned at the start that I'm a former board member of Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. It was actually a friend of mine who got me involved with this organization. And I actually started studying the foundation courses of nutritional and environmental medicine that is geared towards healthcare practitioners, in particular medics. So then I start that 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 switched my brain about 2015-16 to reignite my knowledge going, wait a minute, what we put into our body impacts our whole body, not just from a physical point of view, 
but from an emotional and from an energetic point of view. And that opened my pathway to starting starting to learn. And I looked at, there's a fantastic um, person whom I, I respect here. There are two amazing medics, Dr. James Mukey and Dr. Gary Fecky here in Australia, who started questioning the medical organizations to going, what are we doing to reverse inflammation in people's bodies? And that ignited my passion to go, illness is caused by inflammation. Yeah. So if you're putting crap in, you're actually going to cause a lot of crap to your body. And when I was going through this transition of studying and learning, I was still involved in corporate organizations. And I would actually start writing some blogs on a weekly basis to some friends and colleagues. And they loved it. So I started questioning things like, what are you eating? What are you putting on your body? What chemicals are you using? What are you putting when you're in the shower? What what chemicals are you using to wash yourself? Because what people don't understand is when you put um, materials onto your skin, that has an impact on your metabolic health as well. Absolutely. Most people, believe it or not, most females on a daily basis use over 100 toxins on their body between makeup, toiletries, um, hair products, body lotions, and they don't think that that has an impact on their health. So that that reignited me. And then when I set up my business around looking at growth, empathy, and mindset, starting to impact people's thought process. And one of the areas where I really push for are two, two key things. Always remember your ABC, always being curious and having the impact. And this is a great platform that you've created to have the the courage and vulnerability to say, I don't know that, but let me find out. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's an amazing message. And I I shouldn't be surprised that one of the, you know, main people that you ended up following was Dr. Gary Fecky. He used ketogenic diets, not only to treat his patients, but also with himself with a diagnosis of cancer. We were fortunate fortunate enough to talk to him and his wife, Belinda. We've had her on a few times and they're just such wonderful people doing amazing research and getting that information out. They had to fight. Gary had to fight (laughs) to, to, to not go, you know, lose his license because they were coming after him. And so I'm curious also as you were kind of changing your diet and you were starting to realize that fruits and vegetables and all these plant foods in the diet may not be the best thing were you experiencing a lot of pushback yourself hugely um you know i was going to say i I lost some friendships through it as well wow people thought i was weird um even now people would say oh let's let's meet for dinner but what is it you're going to eat and i'm going i'm going to eat proper foods um, and I, you know, people look at me and even it's funny. So one, one of the blessings I have from my cancer journey, if that makes sense, is that every three months I have a full blood test from my hematologist and I walk in now and he's going, Martin, you should have relapsed at least twice by now. Wow. But I don't think you should eat too much red meat. So we have an agreement. I say to him, once I start teaching you about blood disorders, you can start teaching me about nutrition. (laughs) Because you know your three hours that you learned at medical school on nutrition is not relevant. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's amazing. So tell us about your transition over to what I, I understand now is either very carnivorous or a full carnivorous diet. What was that transition like for you and when did that take place? So it was about three years ago, I was, I got into the sort of ketogenic lifestyle about four or five years ago. And then about three years ago, I went, I don't need some of these things. And believe it or not, and I think a lot of people misunderstand this, I'm now full carnivore and have been for several years. It's actually very cost effective. 
Many people, and I was one of them, if you're following a ketogenic lifestyle, depending on how many people you're catering for in your household, you might throw away certain foods that could be $20 or $30 a week. You buy a whole thing of celery, for instance, you use a quarter of it, you throw it out. That over time, you think, well, I'm wasting money. And also from an economical point of view, I go to one store, I go to the butcher. So I'm not wasting two hours walking around the supermarket. I just go to one place. Yeah, it's great. And I think the other key thing which people don't really understand is the benefits of intermittent fasting as a protocol. And it doesn't matter what lifestyle that you choose, whether it be carnivore or ketogenic, intermittent fasting is one of the biggest gifts that you can give yourself. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And when you are eating a carnivorous diet, it is very easy and very natural to do intermittent fasting because you're eating foods that are causing you to be so satiated that it's easy for you to go a long time before your next meal. And that's part of the economical thing, in my opinion, is like if you're only eating once or twice a day, just by nature of not eating and snacking all the time, that already is going to mean that you're spending less on your food. You're not throwing away food at the end of the week. We were throwing away tons and tons of food back when I was eating a, a you know, quote, quote, healthy diet with lots of vegetables and fruits and all those things, let alone the time it took to shop, which you mentioned, the time it took to prepare and store all this food that was eventually going to end up in a landfill at the end of the week. Like, of course that was going to happen. And I'm just curious, we, we know that the carnivore diet can benefit lots of different things, but can you speak specifically on making sure, you know, as you mentioned, like, like your cancer should have relapsed at least twice by now. Why are you continuing to eat the way that you do to help make sure that that cancer doesn't come back? What are some of the components of a carnivorous diet and or intermittent fasting that help you understand that that's what's going to help keep you healthy for the rest of your life? That's a great question. One of the quintessential aspects leading a carnivore diet eliminates the appetite in the brain to thinking that you need carbohydrates and you need sugar. Now, cancer and sugar don't go. Yet, if you do any research, and this is a bit where I have a big issue with every cancer type charity they'll say eliminate red meat why not eliminate ultra processed foods and sugar that's an essential message the other key thing is that i have to say one downside about leading a carnivore lifestyle is the impact it has on what you wear your clothes because you essentially lose weight because you go back to the body shape that you have. So anything that is too big, you have to get a new wardrobe. It's expensive. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of funny. You think I was a large size in that three, four years ago. Now I'm a medium size. And you also have a different swagger, I would say, because your energy levels are, in my opinion, higher because carnivore lifestyle will lead to wanting better sleep. You will go to bed earlier because you're not feeling that you have to have crackers and cheese at eight o'clock at night or ice cream because you feel full. Because you intuitively listen to your body. Yeah. And that has a massive ripple impact. The one one of the key messages I would say is be patient, though. Depending on where you are in your life, one of the key things, the key messages that I would say is that it takes eight to nine months to produce a baby. It will take you eight to nine months to actually really change your body from what, you, what your belief system has been to moving over here into a low-carb carnivore lifestyle. Yeah. And you will fall off the wagon at times, and that's okay. That's part of the learning process. It's not one of those 30-day diets 
mantras that people have out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's one of the coolest part about a carnivore diet. We talk about it all the time. It tends to kind of self-correct. Once people start feeling good, there's less times in life that people want to feel bad. It's like, I know you talk a lot about birthdays and how important birthdays are. It's like the old mentality was like, okay, great. It's my birthday. I'm going to eat all the stuff. And, And it's like, well, wait a second. Why would you want to spend your birthday feeling terrible? You just you just slowly notice over time there's less and less life that you that you want to spend feeling terrible. It's really easy to stay on the diet because you just feel great all the time. Why would you not want to feel great? It's amazing. Well, it's funny actually. And one of one of the things that I advocate if you're invited to someone's house. So say I came to your house. Actually, you're probably not a great example. Say you go to a, a friend's house that is unaware of your lifestyle and they make a cake or they make something, especially at this time of year. I'm of the belief that if you are following a carnivore or low-carb lifestyle, it's actually okay to either say no or just say, I'll have a small amount because that host has actually put a lot of love into making something. So it's okay to, in my opinion, to accept that because it's an acceptance of friendship and community. So you don't have to have the blinkers on and going, I can't, I can't, I can't. Occasionally, I would say it is okay to accept something from somewhere where else. As I said, if it's made from love, because one of the things with proper nutrition is also the community and the connection that it has with people. Yeah, I love that. No, I think that's an awesome point. I, I do want to ask you, you've you mentioned this before. We talk about gut health and we talk about a carnivore diet doesn't have any of the things that we classically assume belong in a gut healthy diet. No fiber, no vegetables, no prebiotics, no probiotics that, that, that people classically think are absolutely essential. Can you tell us a little bit about why having zero fiber and zero plant material is actually better for your gut health versus understand, listening to the standard advice that just says you need to shove as much fiber as you can down the hatch? So that's a great point. And one of the key things that I, I love is the mindset that people think Fiber is important. Your body is a beautiful machine that actually will get rid of the nutrients on a daily basis that it no longer needs. When you're following a carnivore lifestyle, when you're eating meat, you have all the amino acids that are essential for your body. From your liver to your kidneys to your pancreas, producing all that goodness inside you. It will also serve as an adjunct between your gut and your brain, clearing your brain for the right thoughts. When you're eating plant-based, you're causing a confusion in your body because we only have one stomach. A cow has four stomachs to digest vegetables. We're not built to actually digest vegetables. And, you know, we're at this time of year where, you know, we mentioned beforehand about the beautiful um, quintessential vegetable that everyone associates with Christmas, Brussels sprouts. And we mentioned that every household wants to have a dog because Brussels sprouts give you wind. (laughs) And you want to blame the dog for farting. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Brussels sprouts stay in that little part of your body where your rib cage opens up, and that gives you reflux both upstream and downstream. Um, and if you look at the elements of Brussels sprouts, there are more carcinogenic elements in Brussels sprouts than there are in red meat. Yep, by a lot. Oh, by X factors. And, you know, they have no nutritional value whatsoever. Um, people will assume that they're healthy for you. I would say no. Yeah. 
I agree. Before we got on this call, you and I were just kind of casually chatting about that notion. And, and, you know, I kind of presented the idea of like, do, do you think the people who say they like vegetables really actually like vegetables or do they really like all the things that come with it? Like, do you like spinach or do you like the spinach with salad dressing and nuts and seeds and chicken breast and all the other things that come in a cheese comes in a salad? Do you really like Brussels sprouts or do you like to cook Brussels sprouts? The only way Brussels sprouts should be consumed with bacon and bacon grease and all the other things that come with it. And I, you're right. Like, I, I don't see a lot of people that just want to munch on broccoli or munch on Brussels sprouts. They want those things, but with everything else that comes with it. And I think it's probably the body craving those other things, the fats, everything that has the nutrients, things that are going to make people feel satiated. It's not necessarily the vegetables, even though that's the association we make. What do you think about that? I totally agree. And one of the things that we have I believe in the last 20 years in particular, we've lost that seasonality of vegetables. Now, I am for vegetables for the right reasons, and especially around the fact that there are some vegetables on a low-carb diet that can be good for you. If you, grow, if you have the capability of growing your own vegetables in your own soil, you can also have the impact that any scraps that you have on your meat, on your, on your meal, you can put back into the soil. So you're bringing that, those nutrients back into the soil because we've also got to look at most soil is mineral depleted. But, you know, I've, I've got two teenage daughters and when they were younger, we used to grow carrots in particular. And my youngest used to love pulling them up no need to wash them, and she would just start eating them. And the shapes, when you actually, and here's a, I would say this is a little um, tool that people could use. If they have the capability of growing carrots is a perfect example, grow them, and then go and have a walk around the supermarket and see the difference. <laughs> They're not even close. <laughs> They're not even close. They don't look the same. They don't taste the same. A natural carrot is so sweet and it has so much great flavor. Same with around here. Like we can grow amazing tomatoes. These tomatoes are incredible. They're sweet on a warm summer day. They just like totally hit the spot right off the bat. First of all, those tomatoes are available for maybe a month. That's it. Once you pick them, they go bad very quickly. You only have like a day or two really to consume them before they start to get wrinkly and oxidized. Again, the flavor is amazing. Calorically speaking, to work in that garden, you are putting in so much energy and input in the form of calories. And you look at the number of calories you get and maybe the few tomatoes you get in that very small period. Calorically speaking, it doesn't even make any sense. But you're right. There is a seasonality to it. And yeah, that food is amazing, but it's nothing, nothing nothing like you can find at a supermarket. The fruits and vegetables that are available 365 days out of the year, quote unquote, farm fresh, planed in from who knows where all year round. And it, the, the food tastes terrible. A store-bought tomato is awful. It tastes like cardboard. Well, it's, it's kind of funny, actually. You know, one of the things that I enjoy doing is walking around the supermarket and actually watching what people buy. And they think that they've got this freshness. And when you have a discussion around people who are vegetarian or vegan, and they'll go, oh, you know, you're ruining the planet by eating so much meat. And then you question where they think their vegetables are coming from. The store employee... The you store, question their sanity levels, Casey. The store employee did not walk to the back of the store for their own little garden and pick you the cauliflower that you're eating. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, it, it, what I find is really bizarre, if you look at a lot of the mainstream media and advertising, and especially now around plant-based dogma, that's having a major impact on people's social life, mental health, and metabolic well-being. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And it's why you and I both really love the work of somebody who's pushing that message forward. Jane Reese Buxton, the author of The Great Plant-Based Con, which is my favorite book from 2022. Absolutely wonderful. 
the, the great plant-based con. Think about that title. It's just so, you know, it's it's so impactful. And yeah, if, you, if you're not aware of that story, you don't understand all the forces that are trying to force plant-based diets down people's throat. It's really terrible. Well, it's funny, actually. I reference that book as the perfect Christmas gift people should be buying. Because what I really liked about the book is that it opened your curiosity to think. And following on from that, I think that one of the downsides that society has put onto people, and again, this could be a whole different podcast, is around the knowledge on cholesterol. And most medics, and I, I recall even myself, um, I got a phone call from a general practitioner. Martin, your cholesterol is too high. Your HDL is too high. It's 4.3. And over here in Australia, the barometer is 3.8. And I'm going, I'm a carnivore. It's going to be high. Look at my triglycerides. Look at this. Oh, no, I think you should go on a statin. I'm going, I think you should learn about nutrition. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's such a great point. And I love how she breaks that down and so many other authors that we could talk about that have done such a great job in educating what we really need to be looking for and lipid panels and what cholesterol markers are really important. Um, you know, you you have a, a really specific interest in gut health. I don't think you can be interested in gut health without being interested in mental health, which you also have a passion in. And I, I'm, I want to ask you this question very mindfully before we leave nutrition. Tell me what changed fundamentally in your own brain personally this doesn't have to be scientific just anecdote for you personally when you switched over to doing a carnivore diet what changed in your brain it was the release of brain fog of of <clears throat> my knowledge i could remember things better i could relate to things better and more importantly what I really felt was that I was getting better quality sleep. So the regeneration of my body, and it's funny, I, I also felt that I was age reversing, my skin became better, my, my mental ability. And one of the key things uh, from a physical point of view, apart from looking and feeling good, my hair started growing back in. That's awesome. I love that. And I had I had a I had a, a teenage problem. I had to go and buy hair product to sort of you know put my hair into a certain certain way. So I really enjoyed those physical changes that were happening. But from a mental point of view, um, my clarity and curiosity started getting more, and my appetite to learn more and still is ongoing is something I'm very very grateful for. Yeah, I love that. And I would argue the gratitude itself. My spirituality went way through the roof when I switched over to carnivore. That was the one thing that surprised me the most is the gratitude, the feeling connected to the people and the animals around me definitely increased. My ability to deal with stress was so much better than it was even with a moderate amount of plant foods. It was a, a still a low-carbohydrate diet, but the complete elimination, I couldn't believe how different it was in my brain. I'm sure that's something you've noticed as well. Well, I think it's funny. One of the things I, I do in my pastime, I'm, I'm a runner and um, I run a five kilometer race most weekends with a bunch of mates. And the time this year in particular has been more consistent. The recovery has been fantastic. And even two of my mates have nicknamed me the Flying Scotsman because my times from several years ago to what they are now are so much better. That's awesome. Yeah, I noticed the same thing. A bike route that I, I used to do when I was racing bikes, I'm minutes faster now than I was back then. And I'm 10 years older and I haven't raced in, in about that long. It's been about a decade. And it, it really is remarkable physically and mentally what can change when you start putting the right fuel into the right machine and let the body do what it does is is really quite remarkable. Tell us a little bit about your work that, that you started to get into with mental health, especially with men in particular and where the challenges were for you in your own personal life, going through cancer, like, like at a time when you were also going through a divorce and maybe feeling like, you know, 
people around you, close to you, had, had passed away, like feeling like you're on shaky ground foundationally for having people to share with. Tell us how all of that has influenced your work now and how you work with men to help them with mental health. Sure. And so one of the gaps that I found, and it really was a cancer gap, if that makes sense, is that there was fantastic resources if you were really young or if you were really old. And it was nothing if you were in that age group between 30 and 60. And in particular, as a man, there was very, very little emotional support. So I realized that there was a gap there. And then it took my knowledge and curiosity down, down a pathway to realize the biggest gap and the biggest pandemic in the world is actually men's health. And if you look at men's suicide rate in that age group between 30 and 60, it's expanding and expanding and expanding. So how do we get to the root cause of the why? And it's not a silver bullet. It's very multi-layered. Anxiety, stress, stigma, and alienation, I think, is probably the biggest thing that men have. We're not programmed to talk about our feelings and our emotions. And it's a cultural thing. It's inbred from us from a very young age. And we hold on to them until we're in that midlife crisis and then something happens. And the area where I found was that men don't talk about it. Women go through menopause. So they're more emotionally, physically attuned with their bodies. Men don't know what's happening. And one of the key things that a lot of men do in particular is that they start masking it with alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, addictive behaviors. So I realized there was a gap in the market and I started working at it. And I have to be honest, it was extremely hard work at trying to break through. And it still is, again, from a society point of view, I'm okay, I don't need help. So I've really focused on working with men, but I've, I've also gone over this end and going, this is not a men's, just a men's only challenge. This is a society challenge. We need a balance of women to help men and men to help women. You can't be so insular, but at times it is important. And I'm working with a group of men at the moment where we work in closed doors and we just talk. And it, sometimes I would say the importance of either talking or in silence is really important for men. Mm. And taking them away from the job title, the perception that they have of themselves, and if they don't do the work on themselves, how are they actually going to be a better father, brother, partner, if you don't, if you're not prepared to put the work in, you have to, you have to start taking stock of yourself. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to ask this as a two-part question. Um, and you know, this may be more from the masculine perspective, although you're right, it can apply to both men and women, but I would say, you know, more of the masculine perception. What, what can I do when I'm the one that needs help? I need an outlet. I need support. What can I do in that position to help generate that support that I need? And also, what can I do in the other times when I'm feeling pretty good, I'm feeling okay and secure in myself, how can I be that support for other people? And again, maybe more masculine, other men out there, how can I be that support for them when they need it? I think that's a great, great question. And I, I would like to answer it by one word, fearless. Being fearless and fearing less, if that makes sense. And if we look at it, and you make a great point, sometimes we need help when we're at the top of the tree, if that makes sense, because we have to realize what that feeling is like and hold that feeling one of the first things that people can do, I would say, is having the courage to say, 
can you help me? Mm. You know, if we look at it from when we're children and we're in, we were in a, a playground, one of the apparatus that is that was of joy is the seesaw. Now, if you're there and you're there and you're playing with some other kids, one of the first things that you will shout out, come play with me. So you're asking for help from a young age. But as we get older, we have this fear about asking for help. And back to the seesaw. When you get on it, you're here with your friend. And if your friend is of a different size, you will end up here or you'll end up here. But the joy of also being down here and seeing your mate up there brings a lot of happiness and then vice versa. So it's two parts. One of the key things is learning how it feels when you're having a high. And when you're having a low, it's not the end of the world. I love that. I love that. And when you look at it that way, there's always kind of a balance there. It's kind of a 50-50 between the two. Like, like, yeah, you can you can be the one that needs help and you can also be the person that's offering the help. And so I love that kind of attitude of fearlessness to be able to step forward, say when you need the help, but also be the one there for people around you when they are the ones in the most need and, and being able to be that support is, is it, it is. It provides a level of happiness, which I think is fantastic. Um, I do want to talk to you about something we talked about off air. I asked you if there was something that you really wanted to cover in this conversation and you made such an amazing point and you talked about slowing down, which is not something I do very well when I'm hosting a podcast and talking a million words a minute, but it is so important. And I think one of the best lessons that we learned coming through the pandemic was the ability to slow down and reevaluate and reassess and make sure that our lives are going in the direction that they want. Can you tell us about the importance of slowing down and how we can mix more of that into our daily, very busy lives? Yeah, uh, it's actually a little anecdote that I, I, um, present most people in the modern life of our age group drive a car, have the ability to drive a car. Now, if you see a set of traffic lights and they're at amber and they're about 100 meters away from you, you have a choice. You can keep going and take that risk of jumping that light. Most of us, in order to slow that vehicle down, have to, one, ask for help. We put our foot on the brake. If we don't put that foot on the brake, our car is not going to slow down. If we don't put the brakes on our own self, we're not going to regenerate ourselves. And one of the daily breaks that we can have, and I call it the Scottish superpower, and that's sleep. But we don't value sleep at the best of times. You know, we have that mantra, sleep when you're dead. Oh, I can survive on five hours sleep. No, you can't. Sleep is essential for your well-being. And if you're eating right, you will sleep right. And by slowing down doesn't mean sleeping during the day. It means going to bed early getting up early in the morning so that you can get the benefits of vitamin D in your body. If we don't slow down, our metabolic health over time will deteriorate. Yep. Yep. And we will crave to, our mindset will crave to things like carbs because they're cheap, sugar products because they're cheap. And the one area where, you know, I think that people forget eating pasta is not good for you. But how many places serve pasta and they think that that gives you energy? That's just a sugar hit. Yep. But if we don't slow down, and one of the key messages I would also like to push here is it's okay to have an off day. It is essential that we have that balance of saying, you know what, today's not going to happen for me. I'm just going to take it easy today. Yeah. And over this festive period, I would say essentially that is important for our, our emotional well-being. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Hard lesson to learn. 
I mean, we all want to be really productive and we really want to get stuff done. And we are in that society that's always push, 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 grind, grind, grind. You're a sucker if you're working less than 60 hours a week. And, you know, people are bragging about how little sleep they get. And if, you know, if somebody's listening to this and thinking like, what, what is Martin talking about? Like, I'm already super busy. There's already not enough hours in the day. Why am I going to want to slow down? Why am I going to want to try to get more sleep? I've got too much I need to do. And and it's such a negative spiral that's sucking your energy all the time. But you you over time really realize that you can make that a positive spiral. And you know, when you're doing those those healthy activities, like you mentioned, you're starting to eat right. You're, you know, getting outside and getting some sunlight. That is all creating this positive spin in the right direction. And getting more sleep will be easy for you. And the sleep that you get will be better quality. And then you're gonna have better energy during the day. And all of those things go in a very positive direction in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. Like I think most people think like it, this is going to be way overwhelming to get more sleep. But it's like no, if you just work with the process and again, get the inputs right that your body needs, your body will take care of itself and you'll be amazed at how easy it feels. I couldn't agree more. And I know people don't understand that your body keeps the score of things like stress. Now, in order to manage stress and stress can actually be a stimulator. But you've also got to balance that with good stress and bad stress and Sleep gives you that fantastic thing. And it's funny, um, I wear a monitor, a a Garmin watch um, to bed. And what pleases me every morning when I wake up is looking to make sure that I've had my seven or eight hours sleep. Yeah. And I have discussions with some mates. And again, we'll talk about how much sleep have you got. We put it in the relevance. And again, you change your mindset. That report for your boss, that spread Excel spreadsheet, is that really important or is your sleep really important? Such a great point. Such a great point. It feels like the report in the moment is the most important thing. But if you look back a week later, a month later, like you're not going to remember any of that stuff and prioritizing your health to have good energy and to have a good and fulfilling life, I think is so much more valuable. And again, it works as a positive spiral. When you start changing some of these things, it might feel challenging in the beginning, but it will get better and it will get easier. And I just, I love your attitude. I love your message. Is there anything that you are really excited for in the future? Yeah, what I'm I'm really excited about is 2023 has to be the year for me. Not me personally, but for the listeners. For me as in you and looking after your health. So you've got 365 days next year. Pardon me, it's not a leap year. Every single day, please value your most important assets. And that's your health. I love that. I love that. What an what a perfect message to send us into the new year. I really appreciate all the work that you've done, all the struggles you've gone through in life to be able to come out on the other side and then to help others with their journeys as well, I think is so wonderful. And I've, I've just really loved spending this time with you. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? Um, so you can find me on Instagram, of um, Martin Gillespie, Facebook, LinkedIn and my website is actually um, just recently changed <clears throat> to gemwellnesswarriors.com.au. Um, and the gem really stands for growth, empathy, and mindset. And there's a lot of information there. Um, one of the key things is that I don't have all the answers, but it is a central point to connect to start your journey to value your most important asset. And that's your health. I love that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that is exactly why we wanted to invite you onto our show today. We're just so grateful for you and everything that you've done, all the things you talk about and so much help that you're providing. So thank you, Martin Gillespie, for everything you do. And thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Casey. I loved it. It was an absolute honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.
As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.